All right. Well, good morning, everyone. I saw on the team that it feels a little bit like Christmas around here to me. We've been pre- preparing for Falltober here for a while, and now it's here, and the Ferris wheel is all folded up, but it's going to unfold here in just a little bit, and it's just a fun way to be able to connect with our community and to invest and uh, just kind of say hi to our neighbors. So I hope you all will be able to come back for that. Get your Bibles out if you would. Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, we started a a new series last week called Living in Exile. And what we're doing is we're going through the book of Daniel. So let's look at this here together. You can follow also along the screen. Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Aspinon's chief of his court officials to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in king's palace. He was to teach in the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, let me kind of give you the backstory of this if you're unfamiliar with the story and what's going on here. Because in 605 B.C., the king of Babylon, whose name was Nebuchadnezzar, he invaded Israel and Judah and besieged the, the capital city of Jerusalem. And Jehoiakim, who was the king of Judah, he very quickly changed his allegiances to Nebuchadnezzar in an attempt so that the city, the city of Jerusalem, wouldn't be destroyed. And part of that agreement meant that he needed to pay tribute to the king of Babylon from the treasury chest of Jerusalem. As well, he's supposed to hand over some of the royal family and and the nobility as hostages. And so included in those hostages were these guys by the name of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they were shipped off to this hostile country of Babylon. Now, Babylon was known for its paganism. It was known for its idolatry and its pride. It was known for its opulent wealth and for its materialism. It was known for its sexual immorality. It was known for its brutality of its kings. And it was known for as a history, just a history of violence. And so this was the nation that Daniel and his friends were exiled to. And for three years, they entered into this brainwashing program for the purpose, the whole sole purpose was to wipe away all of their sense of past culture, their family heritage, and their spiritual upbringing. I think for us, maybe the only way we could relate if somebody was to kidnap you and to ship you off to the nation of Iran, Iran, and there you were to learn all the culture there, and you'd be brought up into their system, into their religious beliefs. This is where Daniel was sent to. Lee Beach, in his book, The Church in Exile, he describes being exiled this way. He says, exile is the experience of knowing that one is an alien, and perhaps even in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. The sense of exile is experienced by anyone who feels alienated, cast adrift, or marginalized by their inability or unwillingness to conform to the tyranny of majority opinion. Simply put, Edward Said writes that exile is the perilous territory of not 
belonging. And so last week we were talking about this. We talked about last week of how even though you and I, we haven't been shipped off to a foreign hostile country, the reality is the country in which we now live has radically changed. This country that we love, this country that so many people have given their lives for, has changed right within our lifetimes. In the last last 25 to 50 years, there's been this huge shift in the belief system of our American culture. We no longer live in a Christian culture. We no longer live in a Christian culture. And that Christian culture, according to sociologists, has been exchanged for what's now called a post-Christian society. And if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, the current and popular thought is that you're not only weird and odd, but you're even dangerous. All of a sudden, we're grouped with these crazies. We tend to be looped in, lumped in with ISIS and and abortionist murderers and lumped in with the shootings of the Orlando Gay Bar. Bar. We're included with all these crazies, and we're now thought of as those who have the moral low ground, those who are intolerant, those who are bigots. And so in our culture, if you're a Christian, you've now become the immoral one. You now have become the dangerous one. And for the first time in American history, Protestant Christians are now in the minority. Think about that. For the first time in all the American history, Protestant Christians are no longer in the majority. You're now in the minority. So much has changed so fast. This has become the new normal. We live in a much different country today than our parents and our grandparents did. And, it's, and we talked about this last week that I think there's a, it's, it's important for us to understand this because I think there's an aspect that you have to actually have to grieve this fact that our nation has changed right under our eyes. It's changed so quickly. And we've now, if you're a Christian, you've now become an outcast in your own country. This is the state of affairs. And I think the temptation for so many Christians is either to respond out of hostility and anger, and I think a lot of people are getting really upset and getting really angry, or to just throw your hands up in the air and just separate yourself from anybody else that's different than you, or to just kind of get absorbed in this changing culture, to just go with the flow, to just blend in. We talked about that last week, but I want you to know that God has another way for us to live. When you find yourself living in exile, when you find yourself living in a culture that's different from your own belief system, God has a different way for us to live. Look at this again in Jeremiah chapter 29. We looked at this last week. Jeremiah 29 Starting in verse 4, it says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. 
Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is a passage, especially those last couple of verses, that a lot of people use as kind of a life verse and kind of a rally and a promise for their own lives. But, but this was written to those first exiles that were shipped off to Babylon, which included Daniel and his three friends. And isn't it interesting what God tells them to do now that they found themselves in exile? I just find this really fascinating that God gives them a whole different way because when you discover that you're in exile, there is this, this thinking of, just like I said, even get really mad, you become really hostile, or you kind of just get absorbed into the culture. But God has a different way for us to live. We talked about this, this last week. If you missed last week's sermon, I want to encourage you to go online and listen to it because I think it's one of those messages that you really need to hear because this is the culture that we're living in now. And we need to know how to live here. We need to know what this means for our generation. And it was this letter from the prophet Jeremiah that God told the Israelites how to live in exile as a creative minority in the midst of a hostile culture. Folks, we are that. You are now. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a minority. And so how do we live as a creative minority? minority in this culture that we've been exiled to, this hostile culture. And so one of the points of the book of Daniel is it shows us then how to do this, how to live as a creative minority, but not just to survive, folks, not just to, just to make it and hope that heaven gets here quickly, but actually how to thrive, how to adapt, how to innovate, how to redefine, how to recreate a new way of living in this new culture that's still true to your core. Jonathan Sachs, his article called On Creative Minorities, he says it this way. He says, so you can be a minority living in a country whose religion, culture, and legal system are not your own, and yet sustain your identity, live your faith, and contribute to the common good exactly as Jeremiah said. It isn't easy. It demands a complex finessing of identities. It involves a willingness to live in a state of cognitive dissonance. It isn't for the faint-hearted, but it is creative. Look at those two words, cognitive dissonance. I think that's what so many of us have felt inside, but we haven't been able to put our hands on, we haven't been able to put words to it. There's a cognitive dissonance that's happening around us and inside of us that causes a lot of angst, that causes a lot of anger. And you kind of look at our culture and you look at people, and even through this election, people are just getting angry. And part of it, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a cognitive dissonance because what's going on is that we're being confronted that the culture has, has shifted its beliefs and ideas and values. And these beliefs and ideas and values are radically in direct opposition to the Word of God. And so there's this cognitive dissonance that's, that's stirring in people's hearts. And so if you don't see it, then all you're left is just with that raw emotion of anger. But the prophet Jeremiah, he he says something that's really important because how do we live then? How do we live when you find yourself in that place? How do you live when you find yourself that the, the whole course of society is heading in a different direction that you want to go? Because when culture shifts, number one, it will try to rename you. When culture shifts, it's going to try to rename you. Look at this in Daniel chapter 1. Look what happened to them. Verse 7, it says, The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. The first goal of culture is to rename you. 
Its, its goal is to try to redefine you. It's going to try to change your identity from what God made you to be to what culture wants you to be like. And it's an assault on your God-given identity. The world wants to put a label on you that God doesn't want you to have. When I was growing up, I was one of those kids that didn't have a lot of words to speak. I, I'm not that type of a person that talks a lot. My, my youngest son, he has an I personality, and since he was just a little kid, and before he could even speak English, he just was always a jabber. He could always just talk, 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 talk. But I, he's completely my opposite. I'm completely different than that, and I think statistics show that the average woman speaks about 20,000 words a day, and the average man speaks 7,000 words a day. <laughs> that might be revelation to you that actually help you this week. But for me, even though the average guy speaks 7,000 words a day, I, I'm probably content with speaking about 4,000 words. And, uh, and so I, I run out of words very quickly, and you can just talk with Courtney, my, my wife, how frustrating it is to be married with me, because by the time I get home, I've already spoken about 3,999. <laughs> and so when she asks me how my day is, I have one word left, fine. <laughs> <laughs> so when I went off to college... My mom didn't think I was going to be able to make it, you know, because how is a kid going to make it through college if he can't actually talk, you know, if he can't actually engage in conversation? And so my mom was really worried I was going to, I was going to really struggle in college and even later on in, in life when I felt God call me to become a lead pastor, I had so many people around me, myself included, um, that was trying to talk me out of it because um, pastoring means you have to speak, Right. And one of the things as a lead pastor is that you have to preach on Sunday. And I don't know if you know this, but there's 52 Sundays a year. There's 52 Sundays a year. And for a guy who doesn't have a lot of words to speak, the idea of having to preach a message, not just one Sunday, but 52 Sundays, I mean, it just might boggles my brain. I don't have that much to say. But even if perhaps I could find enough to say for 52 different messages, that's just one year. <laughs> And usually people don't want to just hire you for a year, you know? It's interesting to me because for me, I'm just not that type of guy. I'm not, I, I'm not loquacious. I don't have a, a verbose personality. I don't speak a lot. I don't have a lot of things to say. And even my mom knew that. My mom questioned my ability to become a pastor. That was the label that was being put on me. But I want you to know something, that God has a redemptive name for you. Even though culture and people around you want to put you, put a name on you and put you in a box, God has a redemptive name for you. And I know that to be true because I've been pastoring now for over 25 years. That's, that's the nature of what God does. For Daniel, his name meant God is my judge. That's what Daniel's name meant. God is my judge. In other words, I answer to God and God alone. But when he was shipped off to Babylon, Babylon changed his name to Belteshazzar, which means lady protect the king. Now, isn't this interesting? Because look at the focus. Look at how, notice how the focus went from God to man. That was the focus. He had a name that initially meant it was all focused on God, but then they changed his name to focus on man. And one of the attacks that so many people face today is in the area of gender confusion. This is one of the labels that people and culture wants to put on you. You're a lady. You don't answer to God. You answer to us. You answer to culture. You answer to your hormones. You answer to the popular thought of what's happening in the world today. They changed Daniel's focus from God's label to man's label. 
But listen to me, folks. Don't listen to the world's label of you. No matter what's going through your head, no matter what's going through your emotions, no matter what hormones are raging through your body, don't submit to the world's label of you. Listen to God. Listen to what God has to say about you. For Hananiah, his name meant Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. In other words, oh, what an amazing God I serve. How many know that to be true? Oh, what an amazing God I serve. That was what his name meant. That was his heritage. That was his value system. But Babylon changed his name to Shadrach, which means I am fearful of God. I'm fearful of God. In other words, God's not good. God's mad at me. So notice how the focus went from God is good to God is bad. So you don't want to serve God because he'll just restrict your life to boredom. You don't want to serve God because you'll just become one of those ignorant, killjoy Christians. You don't want to serve God. God's not for you. He's against you. But listen to me, folks. That's a lie. That's a lie because God is for you. God is good, and he's faithful to you even when you're faithless, and he'll never, ever give up on you, and he has your best interests in mind. This is who God is. For Mishael, his name meant who is what God is. Who is what God is. In other words, man, there is no one like my God. How many know that to Drew? There's no one like my God. That's what his name meant. That was his heritage. That was his value system. That's who he was. But Babylon changed his name to Meshach, which means I am despised, contemptible, and humiliated. Look at how they switched his name. It went from a focus of confidence to a focus of cowardice. And you know what? This is exactly what the world wants to do to you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. The world wants to quiet you. The world wants to shut you up. There's a separation between church and state, don't you know? So just shut up. Be quiet. That's what the world wants to project on you. The world's trying to make you to be a coward. But listen, folks, you need to be confident that there is no one like our God. You need to be confident who God has called you to be. Don't be afraid to pray in that restaurant. Don't be afraid to call yourself a Christian. You don't, need to have to, you don't have to be rude about it, but you do need to be confident in who God's called you to be. For Azariah, his name meant Yahweh has helped. Yahweh has helped. It's interesting because that word Yahweh is this enduring team. So Azariah's name meant, in other words, this loving God is personally involved with my life. What, what incredible core to your life. Just know this loving God, he's personally involved in my life. But when he went to Babylon, they changed his name to Abednego, which means servant or slave of Nebo. And Nebo was the patron god of scribes, wisdom, and literature. He was also the keeper of the tablets of destiny. Notice how his focus went from that of being a son to a slave from an intimate relationship with God to being a slave to all these worldly ideologies and philosophies. See, folks, when culture shifts, you better know who you are. Amen. When culture shifts, and listen, folks, it has shifted. And so you better know who you are. You need to be secure in your identity in Christ. And I'm just going to keep saying this, that I want all of you to go through Catalyst. Catalyst is our internal discipleship program. We have right now about 250 people going through Catalyst 1, 2, and 3. And the reason why this is so important, because you need to be anchored in your faith. You need to know who God is, and you need to know who God's called you to be. You need to know your purpose. You need to know your identity. You need to know your destiny, what he's called you to. And I tell you, that's more important now than ever before. 
when you have all these forces pressing in on you that's trying to change your name, to change your identity, you better be secure in who you are. You better be secure in what God has told you to do and who God is. Because I'm telling you, the world's telling you something else. Just turn on the TV and listen to what the world is saying. Watch movies. Watch what you, you hear. The, the voices, the social media around you is pressing in on you. So you better be anchored solidly to your faith. For Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, culture changed their names, literally changed their names. But it didn't change their identity. It didn't change their identity. Number two, when culture shifts, it will try to tame you. Not only will it rename you, it tries to tame you. Look at this in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Then he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, I want you to notice something I think is really interesting about what's going on here. Because notice that in the midst of the shift that Daniel's been put into, this hostile foreign culture that he finds himself in, notice what's going on here. Because Daniel doesn't shift his attention to try to change culture. He doesn't try to change other people. Daniel wasn't trying to change culture. He was trying to preserve his convictions. Did you see that? And I think this is really important for us to understand because so many of us were spending so much time getting mad at culture and trying to change culture, and all the while we're losing our own personal convictions. And if you're not careful, that's exactly what will take place. For Daniel, he resolved not to defile himself. No matter what everybody else was doing around, he resolved not to defile himself. In spite of this hostile culture that he found himself in, he resolved not to defile himself. But I want you to look and look what this verse is talking about. Because it's interesting because all they're talking about is food and wine. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? And all the things that you could kind of compromise with, they're talking about food and wine here. That's it. And so at the, on the surface, it looks like this is just a small little thing. So Daniel, what are, you getting all, what are you getting all uptight about? Why is this such a big deal? But for Daniel, he was Jewish. In spite of how much that the Babylonians tried to brainwash him, he stayed true to his core, true to his convictions. He was Jewish. And there were strict dietary rules for, for Jews, for Jewish people. In addition... Probably all food had already been sacrificed to idols there in that, the country of Babylon. That's what they did. That's what they did. So all the food was most likely offered to idols. And so maybe this was just a small little thing. It's food. It's wine. Maybe it was just a little thing. But for Daniel, it went against his convictions. It seems small, but yet it still went against his conviction. When culture shifts, folks, it will try to tame you. It will try to make you a person of no convictions. And it starts little. It's the frog in the water that's cold, that begins to go cold to warm to hot to boiling. And before long, you're dead, right? <laughs> you're a boiled frog. That's, that's the nature. It, 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 turns, it starts little, and uh, you, you let go of this conviction, then you let go of this conviction, then you let go of that, convic that conviction. It'll try to lure you to do something that you don't want to do. That's the nature of the pressure of culture. But pastor, it's not a big deal. Pastor, it's not, that's not really a big thing. It's not really going to hurt me. I mean, after all, I'm, I'm tired of always having to be the, the one who's going against what everybody else wants to do. And so I, I'm just going to do it this, this once because it's not that big a deal. Listen, folks, when culture shifts, don't lose your convictions. Even in the small things, don't lose your convictions. For Daniel, he didn't shrink for the moment. And then number three, when culture shifts, it will try to claim you. 
When culture shifts, it will try to claim you. Look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 9. It says, Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishaiah, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Now notice what he's talking about here. He says, please test us. Test us for 10 days. It's interesting that he uses the number 10 because throughout the Bible, the number 10 is always about testing. It's always used in, 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 in forms of testing. The Ten Commandments is there to test our faith. Malachi says that the tithe is a test. And the tithe is we give 10% of our income, that we're to live on 90% of our income, and we're to give 10% of our income back to the Lord. And Malachi says it's actually a test. The disciples were in the upper room hiding out for 10 days while the rest of the community was trying to hunt them down to kill them. When you look at the book of Revelation, chapter 2, it describes a church by the name of Smyrna was tested for 10 days. The number 10 has always been used throughout Scripture as a time of testing. Listen, folks, you will be tested. You will be tested. It will come. There will always be a moment when culture will get up in your face and it'll test you. It's the nature of what we live in, the nature of the pressure of this world. Look at verse 12. It says, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare your appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. There will always be a moment when culture will test you. Why? Because ultimately, culture wants to claim you as one of their own. That's the nature of culture. Culture wants to claim you as one of their own. There is a battle for your life, and God is on one side, and culture is on the other side, and you have to decide. You have to decide. Nobody else can decide for you. You have to decide, because there will always be a moment when culture will test you. I remember when I was I lived in Germany after college, and I was a young 20-something, fresh out of college, and, and uh, one day I was at this train station, and this, this beautiful young lady came up to me and introduced herself to me, and we started having a, a conversation, but not too far into the conversation. She looked at me and said, Warum gehen wir nicht zusammen Urlaub? In English, that is, hey, why don't we go on a trip together? Why don't we go on vacation together? Now, I didn't know her from Adam. I didn't know her at all. But here was this beautiful young lady that was trying to engage me in some sort of way. And I, at the time, I had no idea this was a thing. I had no idea. Um, this. I, I was living in Germany as a 20-something-year-old all by myself, all, all alone. I was just so naive. I was just so innocent from the plains of Colorado. And my value system was a certain way. And, and this German culture was just so foreign for me. And it was so different than the value system I grew up. It was so promiscuous. There was nudity everywhere. And I didn't know at the time that this was just kind of a common practice where strangers would hook up together. They had these chance encounters, and they'd go off for a vacation or for a weekend with each other. I didn't know that that was a common thing. So for me, I remember standing there feeling a bit d- dumbfounded. You know, I don't know how that makes you feel if somebody comes up to you and asks you to go on a trip with them, um, obviously for other reasons than maybe a naive young 20-something would, would think of, but I, I remember standing there feeling a bit dumbfounded, and the lady must have um, sensed my hesitation, so she quickly took my hand and said, come on, it'll be fun. You know, in that moment, 
immediately the thought came racing up in my head, why not? Why not? I mean, I'm here in Germany. I'm all by myself. I'm a young guy. Let's go on this adventure. Let's see where this takes. I mean, this, this will be fun. And no, nobody will know. It's not going to be that big of a deal. I'm here all by myself. But as soon as I had that thought go through my head, it's like I came to my senses and I had another thought. And that thought was, what in the world am I doing? What in the world am I doing? This is not me. And very quickly, I let go of her hand and said, no, 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 thank you. And I quickly turned around and, and walked away. Every one of you, there will be a perfect storm in your life where culture will stand in your face and it'll try to test you. And in that moment, you're going to have a choice. And let me just say, never give in to pressure. And let me tell you, that pressure is coming. It is, it's getting stronger and stronger. This young generation, those of you who are teenagers, your mom and dad and grandparents didn't experience anything like you are right now. This culture is becoming heavy. And so for every one of us, we have, that's where your faith has to be anchored to something. It has to be stronger than just coming to church, stronger than what your parents or your grandparents say. It has to be you because the voices are going to say, come on, just come with us. Come. No one will, will know. Come on, take this. Drink this. Look at this. It's not going to, it's no big deal. We need to be able to say no. No. That's not who I am. This is not what my life is. I choose God. Look at verse 15. It says, at the end of the day, those 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. You know, the world wants to make you think that if you do it God's way, then you're going to miss out. That you'll be less than. But listen to me, God's way is better, folks. What God has for you, doing it God's way is so much better. Verse 16, so the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time, set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them, look at this, ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Listen, folks, our God is 10 times better than anything that this world can offer you. He's 10 times better. He's so much greater than what the world is trying to shove on you and press in on you. And so I have a question for you this morning. Because in light of the shift that's happening in our culture, in light of what's going on, that our world has changed so fast, in light of this, that you are, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're now in the minority, in light of all of this, Where's your identity going to come from? Because is your, is your identity going to come from God? Or is your identity now going to come from the culture, this world, and what has so changed radically around us? Where's your identity going to come from? I had this picture this past week, and, and this picture that I had, I was in this boat, and uh, this current was pushing me down this stream in this direction that I actually wanted to go to. And, and so it was an easy ride. It seemed like everything and everyone was going in the same direction that this current was going to. But then all of a sudden, the current changed. And now it was going in a direction that I didn't want to go. But yet, everything and everyone was still going down in that same, same that, that, that direction of that current. But for me, it was going in the wrong direction. 
Now, when the current was going in the direction that I wanted it to go, when it seemed like everything and everybody was going in the direction that I wanted to go, it was pretty easy because I could just float. I didn't have to make decisions. I didn't have to be intentional about anything because the current was going in the direction that I wanted to go. So I could just float without much effort. But when all of a sudden the current changed and it was going in a different direction than I wanted it to go, and it seemed like everybody and everything was going in a different direction that I wanted it to go, now all of a sudden it got hard. Because now I couldn't just float. Now I had to be intentional. Now I had to be proactive. I had to actually make some decisions and do some things in order not to follow the current stream. Listen, folks, that's a picture of what I think is happening in our culture. It's shifted. The current in our culture has shifted. And as a result, you can't just float. You can't just, just sit around and just let, let culture go, go with what culture is doing. You can't just float because culture is now going in a completely different direction. And when you look at it, it's completely contrary to the Word of God. And so now, because culture has shifted, because the current has shifted, it's no, it's no longer a Christian culture that we're, we're kind of riding our boat in. Now you can't float. Now you have to be vigilant. Now you have to be intentional. Now you have to be proactive. Now you're going to have to decide. In Daniel's case, in Daniel 1 verse 8, it says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Daniel resolved. He made this resolute decision that in spite of where he found himself in this horribly hostile culture where it seemed like everybody was doing it different, he personally resolved. He made a decision not to defile himself. When you live in exile, when you live in a culture that's beliefs and ideas and values are in direct opposition with the word of God, everything changes. I don't know how you've lived up to this point. I don't know if you've just been like me, maybe, and just kind of floating, just kind of floating, just kind of going with culture, not really being intentional. But I want to tell you something, the current has shifted. The current has changed. And so you can't just float. And just like Daniel, we have to make that resolute decision. You have to decide. You have to be proactive. You have to be intentional. Because everybody else is now going in a different direction. And if you're not watching, you'll just flow with that current because that's where it's easy. That's where the water is flowing. I want you to ask you to close your eyes here. Because maybe this morning you're realizing that the culture has been winning in your life. The culture has been trying to rename you, and it's winning. The culture has been trying to tame you, and it's winning. The culture has been trying to claim you, and it's winning. But maybe this morning, you're waking up. It's like you're coming to your senses. And just like Daniel, you need to make that resolute decision where you say, I want to be secure in my identity in Christ. I want to be secure in my convictions. I don't want to give in to this pressure. I want to make that resolute decision to not defile myself. Maybe that's you that you're, just, you're waking up to then your senses. You're waking up. It's like your senses are changing and you're coming to your senses and you're seeing maybe clearly what's going on around you and your little raft is maybe heading in that wrong direction. I want to just pray here together, if you would. I want to just kind of lead you in prayer and making that as a decision, as a resolute thing in your life, this value you're going to anchor your soul to in the midst of things that are changing so radically. So just say this out loud with me. Say, God, 
Say it out loud. Say, God, I thank you that you have a purpose for my life. Even in the midst of a radically changing culture, you have a purpose for my life. You have plans to prosper me and plans to give me a hope and a future. And so today, I choose that purpose. I choose you. I have decided to follow Jesus, the world behind me, the cross before me. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. And I choose to find my identity in you. I choose you, and I shake myself free from those names that the world around me has tried to put on me. And I shake myself free from those chains that have tried to tame me and to make me a convictionless person. And I shake myself free from this culture that is trying to claim me as one of their own. God, I thank you that I'm not alone. And I thank you for placing me in a family. I don't have to do this by myself. And so today, I commit my life to you. God, you said that anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. So today, I'm calling on you. And I believe that you sent Jesus to die for my sins, to take my place. And I believe that you raised him from the dead. And so now I'm asking that you would raise me up, that you would fill me up, that you would make me bold, that you would make me courageous with your spirit. Thank you, Father, for saving me. Thank you for putting courage inside of me. And so today, I have decided, I have resolved to follow Jesus. No turning back. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand to your feet here. I've asked the worship team just to lead us in this song here this morning. And just as you pray that, I want you to just take this song and make this your resolute decision. Sometimes it's good to sing what you have decided. Sometimes it's good just to let your voice come alive and just let this be your foot that you're planting in the midst of things are shifting. Be the anchor to your soul. Come on, let's sing this together. I have decided. <laughs>